Developmental language disorder. One in 14. DLD. The DLD project. The Talking DLD podcast. Brought to you by the DLD project. Hi everyone, it's Sean here. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Talking DLD podcast. In this episode, we're speaking language assessments with associate professors Natalie Monroe from the University of Sydney and Marlene Westerfeld from the Griffith University. Together, they will combine their extensive expertise as researchers and speech pathologists to help you understand what happens in a language assessment, why they are important, and how you can prepare to make the most of your session. Welcome, everyone. Um, I'm really looking forward to today's Talking DLD podcast. I will introduce you very quickly to Marlene Westerfeld and Natalie Munro. I might start with you, Marlene. Can you tell us a little bit about your connection to DLD? And then I'll throw to Nat to follow up. Yeah, so I've had a long-standing interest in um, child language um, right through from, you know, the minute I started practicing as a speech pathologist to um, becoming an academic, I suppose, or a clinical researcher um, and um, in teaching as well. And what really sort of sparked my interest then in DLD is when I was invited by Dorothy Bishop to join the Catalyze Consortium. It's been a a real eye opener to sort of um, understand or to get an appreciation of the differences in opinion of what do we label these children. And um, yeah, since then I've become a real advocate for developmental language disorder and a real interest in sort of getting the message out there. Do you want to tell us a little bit about your role at Griffith University as well and some of the areas that you research? Sure. So I'm an associate professor in the Master of Speech Pathology program at Griffith. And um, my teaching is all around child language and literacy development. My main areas of research interest at the moment are looking at children's um, emergent literacy skills, which really then um, includes both the print-related skills we know we need to learn to read, but also the oral language skills that we really need to learn to read. And, um, and I look at um, children with um, Down syndrome, children with developmental language disorders, children with autism spectrum disorders. And yeah, that's the main focus at the moment. Awesome. Thanks so much for sharing. Nat, I'll pass to you now. What's your connection to DLD? So I'm an associate professor and speech pathologist at the uh, Faculty of Medicine and Health at Sydney University. And I teach and research quite similar to Marlene in terms of um, child language development and disorders. Um, like to dabble in language and literacy a little bit. And I've kind of always been fascinated with how kids um, learn words and then um, springboard from there in terms of, you know, developing communication skills. So my work covers um, across childhood. So I look at late talkers all the way up to um, young people. Awesome. And I'm so pleased that we've got two speakers today because you're both so knowledgeable on our topic, which is going to be looking at assessment. So before we get to the diagnostic component, um, I'd really want to talk a little bit about why is it actually important to assess a young person's language skills? And happy for either of you to start by answering. Oh, I'll start. Go Um, for it, Nat. (laughs) (laughs) Well, I mean, from a parent perspective, it's usually like trying to answer the question of, is my child okay? You know, I've got some, I've got some concern, you know, does my child have, you know, some communication difficulties and, you know, are they bad enough or um, why am I worried about this? I need some more opinion, you know, some expert opinion or I need a a better understand, you know, where my child is at um, compared to other kids, their age. Um, And for the young person themselves, if they're a little bit older, it might help explain, um, you know, that a diagnosis can help explain that they're not dumb because sometimes, mm. you know, they might get feedback that, you know, they're naughty or their behaviour is an issue and or they might think that they're just not um, clever, which is actually, as we know, definitely not the case um, for, for kids and young people with DLD. So that's, that's the broad kind of reason why I think it's important to assess a young person's um, language skills from their mm. perspective. Um, And from our perspective, from a speech pathologist perspective, I think it comes down to what's your purpose of assessment, you know, so and there's many reasons why a speech pathologist might want to assess a a young person for DLD or, or another type of communication disorder. So it could be diagnostic, right, so we we could want to um, look at a, um, a communication disorder or a label 
Um, we could want to look at differential diagnosis. So is it um, DLD or is it um, language difficulties associated with um, another neurodevelopmental disorder like autism? Um, it could be that we want to um, assess a child to detect change before and after therapy to look at outcome measures. Um, it could also be just to describe the child's communication skills. And in, in that situation, you don't necessarily have to use a diagnostic label. Um, and then it could also be that you do an assessment because you want to select an intervention and plan goals for your treatment. So there's, there's many reasons why a speech pathologist would like to you know, assess. I think it's really important for us to look at those distinctions because they do, depending on what your purpose is, um, your assessment approach will be different. Yeah. Absolutely. Marlene, anything else to add to that? No, I absolutely agree. I think um, perhaps another couple of thoughts are that we sometimes know that children are at risk of developing um, language difficulties or not developing their language as we would expect. And we could think, for example, of children who are born very prematurely. So we would like to keep an eye on, on those children. And in those cases, we might become involved um, before they even learn to speak. And I clearly remember par parents asking me like, oh, my child doesn't talk yet. Like, what are you doing here? And it's really important then we sort of look at those early signs of communication before children learn to talk. And another reason is that we sometimes know that children, even though their language skills or their communication skills might be might seem all right, um, especially during the preschool years, we might sort of know that they're at risk of developing reading difficulties, for example, and those language problems could be more subtle. And um, especially in children who have been diagnosed with a specific disorder, that sometimes makes it easier for us to know they'll be at risk. Um, not always, of course, because every child's different. And I'm thinking um, autism spectrum disorder, for example. So again, we might just want to do an assessment to sort of look at those um, language related skills that we know are so important to do well at school and to do well in life um, more generally. Mm. I get often asked at uh, kids' birthday parties or at the park, you know, what does a speech pathologist do? And don't you just do lisps and all of these other things? And even just that understanding of the fact that, um, you know, there's speech and language and that the communication is how, it, you know, and how it all comes together, I think is still at a population level, something that we're grappling with, um, you know, and one of the reasons why I do say go ahead and get a, an assessment by a speech pathologist is a, in, often it's a cost-effective way of actually looking at, you know, how are they communicating with the world around them, which is we can't really avoid it, can we? No, and, and the other thing that I think um, people aren't always aware of, there may be children who have um, behaviour difficulties at school and nobody thinks about their language skills or their communication skills and those behaviour difficulties or challenging behaviors might actually a sign of underlying communication difficulties and it's their way of telling the world hey hang on um, something's not right so again in those cases we want to rule out um, language difficulties or communication difficulties and um, there's some research and it's it's you know, confronting research um, that have shown that has shown us that um, many adolescents in the juvenile justice system, for example, have significant language difficulties, and nobody picked that up. Now, I'm not saying that's why they ended up there, but if we um, sort of, you know. Um, diagnose those difficulties early on or we at least understand what's going on then hopefully we can prevent some of these um, more serious consequences later on in life. Yeah absolutely and thinking about how it looks across the lifespan which is brings us beautifully to our next question which is that we've got a range of people that listen into the podcast. We've got families and teachers and, and other health professionals, including speech pathologists. Um, what should they be looking out for to know when a language assessment might be needed? Well, for little ones, Sean, we could look at um, how their vocabulary is growing. And so um, children typically, you know, start their first words around 12 months. Um, if you've got a, a toddler who has less than 50 words or is not combining two word combinations, you know, around that 24 months of age, then that can be a red flag. Um, 
so can, um, you know, poor speech intelligibility. So um, if an unfamiliar listener has trouble understanding what your child says, you know, around three, three and a half, you know, that that can be a, a concern as well. So that's the speech sound accuracy side of things. Um, you know, following instructions and um, uh, looking at how a child follows others rather than following the words that someone says, that could be um, a concern that you can notice at home or at in, in early childhood care, you know, early childhood care. Mm -hmm. um, when you read a story uh, to a young, a young child and then you ask some questions about the story, if they're not following um, or answering the questions about the story in a, in a sense that you you would think that they would be able to understand those kind of questions, then that, that could also be a concern as well. Um, sentences that sound immature. Um, so it could be there might be some grammatical errors um, and they're, they're common in, in preschoolers, but if they stay longer than what you would anticipate, um, you know, maybe they'd use words like getted or eated and they're, you know, they're at school, early school, that's, you know, a bit of a problem. Um, or if they're using non-specific words like stuff and thingy uh, instead of more precise vocabulary, uh, you know, particularly as they get into that kind of school age, early school age range, then that to me would be a bit of a, con a concern for um, parents or teachers. Yeah, so um, what Nat is referring to are sort of what we might call um, red flags um, that will definitely um, indicate to parents or um, people working with young children to seek help from a speech pathologist. And um, Sean actually was involved in creating the Communication Milestones poster that is freely available on the Speech Pathology Australia website. So I'm sure a link will be added to this podcast. Absolutely. Um, so for those of you who couldn't keep up with Nat's um, amazing list of red flags, um, we really strongly suggest um, that you go to that um, communication milestones. Um, and then, yeah, moving into the early school years, often children um, do not have obvious um, language difficulties. So their language may actually sound all right. So they can get their message across. Um, their sentences may be a little bit what we um, what we call immature, but they will be mostly grammatically correct, although they may drop some past tense ending. So, for example, in say, instead of saying walked, they may still say walk, or they may say um, things like, um, you know, some, some sentences may be oddly structured and the word order isn't quite right. But often these kids actually at face value sound all right. And it's quite tricky for parents, especially to sort of know whether that is a red flag or not. Um, one of the big red flags would definitely be um, difficulties learning to read. So when children start prep and in the first six months um, of their school age years, and I, I really hate this wait um, to fail approach. But if you do notice that a child has difficulty sort of learning to read, um, then it's definitely a very good idea to get an assessment um, because there are lots of spoken language skills that under, underpin learning to read. So learning to read is more, th more than um, learning what the letters mean. Um, what the letters are and what a word says, but it also requires, for example, phonological awareness skills, which is knowing that words are made up of sounds, which is a real spoken language skill. And we sometimes find that children may have had um, difficulties in, with intelligibility, like Nat just said. So they were difficult to understand during the school age year, but it sort of came right, um, not quite perhaps. So that, yeah, that is definitely a red flag to us. And sometimes, then, sometimes, Marlene, I was just yeah. thinking about, um, you know, even with the school age kids where they have subtle speech production difficulties, like mm. with polysyllables. So polysyllables are words that have three or more syllables in them. Those longer words like, I don't know, binoculars or helicopter. Caterpillar. Um, and, and, yeah. Mm. And, and those kind of... Um, Sometimes speech pathologists will probe into those kind of words to see how accurate um, uh, young kids can kind of um, produce those because it's still, while the speech sounds might have kind of resolved a little bit, you still have some subtle difficulties and those skills are also related to literacy acquisition as well. That's right. Yeah. 
And another big red flag to me is um, children who enter school and cannot retell a simple, unfamiliar story. So you might sort of read a little story to them and you ask them, okay, now it's your turn to tell the story. And the story may be completely out of sequence or they may only give you a few little details or um, sometimes children refuse, but most kids give it a little go. And um, that may reflect um, the fact that they haven't been asked to do that before. And in those cases, um, you want to give them some exposure and try that again in six weeks time, um, because at school, they'll have lots of exposure to books. But if they still find that difficult, then to me, that is definitely um, a reason for further language assessment. Um, and another one, it really is if you read a story to a child and you ask them questions following the story, especially upon school entry, if a child has difficulty ask, um, answering um, who's the story about, what happened in the story, what was the problem in the story, then again, um, that might be a sign of underlying um, language difficulties. When they're older as well, like, you know, I'm thinking about the grade four uh, you know, year four, year five kid that might be able to, they've cracked that code, they can read, right? But um, when they actually learn how to, they've, they've learned how to read and now they're reading how to learn, right? And then they having difficulties actually understanding what they're reading. That's also can be a, a, a red flag. And then I've, oh, the other one that I was thinking of as you, was, you were talking about is like the social kind of consequences or the social difficulties that some children can have because of um, language disorder. So, you know, things like um, having trouble making friends and keeping friends can, can be a concern. Um, and and um, if your child's being teased and, and it's having an impact, um, the child is upset you know, and, and having an impact on that, on that, um, their life, then I think that's an, another reason why to kind of explore, you know, that behaviour, that interaction skills as well, because some kids can, with language disorder, can present with difficulties, um, you know, with social interaction and, and developing that. Coming back to um, reading comprehension, which is what Nat um, was starting to talk about. So we often um, see children who are in their third or fourth year of schooling, have never seen a speech pathologist and have always sort of been okay, you know, been able to communicate okay and their language sounded okay. Um, they've learned to decode or crack the code, as Nat said, but um, when you then ask them questions about what they've read, they have significant difficulties. And when we then do an assessment and we'll talk about the, um, you know, the ways we do assessments later, what we find is that they're actually, um, their vocabulary may be all right. So they may know lots of words. Um, their sentence structure may be all right. So they'll be able to formulate sentences and understand sentences. But when we go beyond sentences, so understanding how to, um, um, give an explanation of something or how to persuade someone or to understand those kind of um, passages that are explanatory, not necessarily narrative or storytelling. Um, those kids have real difficulties. And that's when we sometimes see a late diagnosis of developmental language disorder. Um, and yeah, and that again leads us back to why we so firmly believe in early diagnosis or, or early detection. Um, so let's move on to adolescence then, because um, we often think developmental language disorder is something that is sort of confined to the, the under 10 year olds, for example. Um, and then with in adolescence, actually, difficulties may not be that obvious. And um, we find that some adolescents develop strategies to sort of mask um, their language um, or their developmental language disorder. Um, and their difficulties are often more with higher order language skills, or we call them higher order language skills. So that could be failing to um, get jokes, for example, to really understand what is meant, something that wasn't explicitly mentioned, but it is sort of an underlying meaning. It could be, um, again, like I said, difficulties at that text level or discourse level, like explaining something. Um, it could be struggling to keep up with um, social banter with peers. So like, Natalie says, we see that sometimes in school age kids, but it becomes more obvious in adolescence. Um, and then these children may end up um, with academic difficulties, of course. Um, and again, that could then show up as adolescent behavior. So again, um, comes back to my behavior comment earlier on. It's, it's just so important to keep thinking 
um, is it the language? Is there an underlying language difficulty? And if not, just rule it out, please. Um, and then, yeah, many, many adolescents with DLD will have difficulties with literacy because of their oral language um, problems. And um, yeah, DLD then goes into, into adulthood if we don't detect it or don't assist or support um, these adolescents as they go through their high school years. And we might see early dropout of school, um, failing to learn, because as Ned said right at the start, um, these kids may be considered dumb, that's a horrible term, but you know, or not being able to learn. Well, actually, if we support them, they can probably learn very well but we just need to know what types of support we need to give them. And that's where assessment is absolutely vital. You've raised a couple of really good points, both of you. One of which is that um, the fact is that these young people do can and do talk. And I think that often people hear about doing a language assessment and go, well, they're talking. And so there's not actually a problem here. And particularly for me, who works primarily with adolescents nowadays, having come from early childhood through schooling, I just kind of keep on following them along. Um, but, you know, they they do struggle with that academic elements and the social elements. And often the upper primary and high school kids say that, you know, their concern isn't their understanding and using language in the way that they were seeing a speech pathologist if they were, you know, seeing one earlier. It's all of the social interactions and managing their, their friendships um, and trying to maintain them. They find them so stressful and, you know, impact them so much. So there's lots around that social and verbal. Um, but what I'm hearing here and the biggest, um, it was a big aha moment for me at a teacher's event, a conference a couple of years ago, where teachers said, I want to have some sort of um, justification or evidence before I say to a family, hey, it's worth pursuing going down this route. And I think that often it's that initial leap. And for teachers to know and, and for family members to know that if you've got concerns in anything that either of you, Marlene or Nada's just said, um, that there is really good reason for saying, hey, look, let's look at a, a language assessment. It's a really um, valuable tool and it provides such helpful information. It can help inform. Um, and we don't want to also get to the point where they're so far down the track that we can't, you know, provide the best quality support that we'd like to. Though I say early intervention is as early as identified nowadays because more and more I'm working with these young people who are 15 and 16 who've never had a language assessment before in their life. Um, and there's still so much we can do. I also think it's important to realise that a language assessment is not just about pinpointing the challenges, right? Mm -hmm. It's very much looking at what are um, a person's strengths in language and then what are the challenges and what can we do to help them become strong across the board. So um, I just want to get that across because mm -hmm. um, we often have this and we talk a bit like impairment based and, you know, impairment focused, but that is definitely not our intention here. We really want to understand, um, yeah, what are a child's strengths and weaknesses across the board? Um, and we'll talk a little bit more about what across the board means um, when we delve into assessment a bit deeper, I think. Yeah. So assuming we've got a really bold, you know, you know, family or teacher who, you know, we've joined the dots and the young person in their family are working with the speech pathologist, what sort of process would a clinician um, undertake to complete this sort of assessment? So it's a bit like a fact-finding mission to start off with, right? So you've got to look at background history. Um, you know, the speech pathologist will ask lots of questions and it might be with this, uh, a survey or a questionnaire about um, developmental history, social history, um, medical kind of education kind of history. Um, and so you'll, you should anticipate, parents should anticipate filling out um, questionnaires like that to find out more about what, what your child um, had, you know, social history and academic history and so, so on. Um, and that's, that's a good thing because we want to try and get a more of a holistic picture. Um, and I think that's encouraging to have that part as, you know, an essential part of an assessment process. So then um, you might also get some questionnaires about 
um, how your child's um, coping with social skills, for example. And these are also good because the speech pathologist doesn't know your child and, the, and you as the parent, do, you know, do, right? So you're the best informant or the teacher or someone who actually interacts with that young person um, in a natural kind of environment. It, it's They're the best informant for us to kind of work out um, how the child is going socially. So, so I would anticipate a questionnaire along those lines as well. Um, and you'll also observe, um, you know, will it, a speech pathologists like to observe you parents interacting with their, with their young child. So if it's a clinic-based assessment, um, you might be asked to, um, you know, um, talk to your child and with, with a picture book. Um, you might be asked to talk with your child, have a conversation during play and, um, and, and go through things like that. And that's helpful because, uh, like I said, parent-child interaction is the most naturalistic. And so then you can, we can get a better representation of what your child's skills are like rather than, you know, just relying on us talking with your child all the time. Um, because sometimes kids are shy, you know, and they might not show their best, um, them, their selves in that first or second or third contact. Um, so you might anticipate that. Um, you might also anticipate that the speech pathologist would like to do what's called a standardised test. And this is usually some sort of picture-based um, or computer-based kind of um, language test, usually involves looking at pictures. Your child does a lot of listening and pointing to pictures, looking at their oral comprehension or their spoken comprehension skills. Or it could be about asking your child questions and um, your child um, can answer questions about um, vocabulary, answering words, might be repeating words or sentences. It's a whole series of kind of little activities that happen in, a, in what's called a standardised test. Or it might be that the speech pathologist asks, um, tells you a story, and Marlene might like to talk about this as well, and then um, shows you a story and the child's asked to repeat that story back and answer some questions about that story. And the other crazy thing that we like to do, and, and this is common across all, all of our assessments, is that we like to look inside your child's mouth. <laughs> and you might be wondering why. Well, that's because we want to check that your the child's oral structures and function are okay. Because it might, it might surprise some of your listeners, Sean, that you, we still get kids with, say, like a, a submucous cleft that hasn't been identified before and they're at school. And, um, you know, it just, it's just something that we like to do. So don't worry about <laughs> if, if that's the case. Um, and, and also hearing. That would be another thing that some speech pathologists might screen a hearing or certainly make a referral for a hearing test with an audiologist as just due process as, you know, as part of that kind of um, diagnostic assessment. Yeah. So basically then... Um to summarize, what we want to do, if we're talking about um, diagnosis, um, so no, let's just backtrack. So assessment, as we said, is about a fact-finding mission, and we will have our hypotheses. We will have questions that we want to answer through our assessment process. And if we suspect developmental language disorder, there are really three things, three questions that we ask. And the first one is, um, is there a significant language difficulty? The second one is, is the language difficulty, has it, is it persistent? Has it been there for a while? And the third one is, is there a functional impact? So what Nat has just um, sketched for us is the persistence we often find out um, through parent reports or through teacher reports, just to know has this child um, had difficulties in communicating for a long time or is this something that has developed recently? Um, has the child seen another speech pathologist, perhaps when they were three and they're now six years of age or when they were five and they're now 12 years of age? Um, and what did that speech pathologist find or what did the teacher think at the time? So that is sort of looking at persistence. The second one is significance. And a standardized test is very good at giving us a standard score. And um, all it does really is it um, is one way of, of asking the child to perform a language task, for example, um, receptive vocabulary. So it's understanding words, we get them to point to pictures, and then we compare them to other children, um, the child's age, and then we get a standard score and we know whether that is significant or not or we ask the child to repeat sentences or we get them to listen to sentences. And, and again, we know how far away 
below or sometimes above um, the average range the child is, and that will give us significance. But then the third one that's really important is that functional impact. And we, we get a sense of functional impact um, when the child, um, when we ask you to talk to the child, to um, see how the child communicates in a more natural situation rather than just sitting the child, you know, at the desk, pointing the pictures, answering questions. Um, by asking the teacher how the child's going in class and also by asking the child to retell a story or to explain how to do something because it is how they use language that is actually the most important thing um, to participate at school um, you know at home and in the community i think the idea of being a bit of a detective you know going on this fact-finding mission is something that i think comes up a lot particularly in speech pathology training, but it's really, really true because we want to make sure that we're not just jumping to conclusions. However, we do know from quite a number of, you know, good epi epidemiological studies that some conditions are more common than others, you know. So if we're looking for information, um, my sister-in-law coined this term when talking about DLD, you know, well, you know, we hear hooves think horses rather than, you know, zebras or unicorns. So you often want to start with something that's quite, um, you know, a, a logical um, thought process and go, well, look, let's look at language. If we've got concerns around academics, behaviour, um, you know, parent report, teacher report, whatever it might be, and go, okay, well, let's look at this language skills and see what they're like. Uh, and then we use that information to help inform. <clears throat> Often, I, you know, I talk to this a lot of, with, you know, clinicians and students and um, people in the community that, you know, a diagnosis is never isn't always static as well and so that's why yeah. assessment is so important that we can use this dynamic approach to assessment um, to really inform diagnosis but just like our medical colleagues if more information comes to light then we will revisit that as well so that's right um, I mean you know. that's a fundamental principle right assessment's an ongoing process um so you might, it's, it's more than one appointment, okay? So I'll tell you what's not, the, what's not the process, getting a diagnosis in 45 minutes, right? That's not the process. We, we need to actually have, we might offer a provisional kind of, you know, hypothesis at this point, but we really do need to see that child more than just a one-off assessment. So I'm just going to put that out there, you know. And, and what else is not the process is when parents... Not, when the parent doesn't get answers to their concerns, if we're not addressing the parent's concerns or if we can't do it, then we need to refer to someone who can, right? So that's that's also not the process. Um, yeah. Couldn't it, agree I, I more. Just, it's just a fundamental a fundamental thing to, to kind of identify. You often and see... I, you go, Marlene. Yeah, and I understand that um, often... Um, therapists, teachers, parents want to jump into intervention. But we know enough about intervention that just giving the child um, intervention one-on-one, -on -one, you know, once a week, perhaps for six weeks or 10 weeks um, is probably not enough to really affect change. So again, what we want to do is we want to really make sure that we um, include all what we call significant others in the child's life so that what we do if we saw the child in a clinic I'm just putting that as an example that we can involve other people so that the child goes out into a world where everyone is trying to help or support the child to become a better communicator so intervention is important but I think we need a good solid assessment of what strengths and challenges are and um, we then need to inform everyone else and our intervention will be very much around teaching the child some skills but also teaching others around the child how to best support the child or adolescents or adults. Mm. Yeah absolutely. I think that there's tension in all of this when it comes to service delivery as well you know that sometimes your service provider will have stipulations around the way in which things do or do not work um you know and I like to I work clinically and I like to think I'm pretty good but by hell I couldn't I couldn't do a really clear assessment and diagnosis sometimes you know and and you know parents might be told oh look you've got an initial appointment but it's actually part of the initial conversations is saying that I'm going to need to see you multiple times 
um, and just establish those expectations. And then one of, ways, one of the ways I manage that is around, you know, having an assessment cost, but then also saying to them, I also have a therapy cost. And I actually often charge my therapy costs because I'd much prefer them to come back and get access to this information, but have clear answers. Because one thing I do see happening quite a lot within the speech pathology community is that they might do assessments, uh, they might provide intervention, but they don't actually answer the question. Um, mm -hmm. So the question of the or the hypothesis might be, does this child have a developmental language disorder? I know there's a whole can, you know can of worms that I'm not going to get into in the under fives um, because there's you know ways and means that we can go around that. But um, you know it's when somebody says to me, you know they've got a 16 year old with a pervasive history of you know intervention and um, you know language assessments from three and six and nine, and nobody's willing to put you know, a label to clarify it for families. I think it's such a big disservice to our families if we don't give them, um, you know, I've talked a lot about in previous podcasts, the importance of a label and how my views have shifted on this. So I won't go into it today, but if you know, by providing parents equitable access to information is critical and making sure that they can um, find the information, know what they're dealing with, just in the case of any other condition that they might face across their lifetime. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, so there's a lot that I think we really need to unpack, both from a family perspective, but also from a clinician perspective. So we're kind of, we're talking broadly here. Hopefully there's lots of fodder for people to uh, pick apart and think about as we're going. Um, yeah. I mean, I, the, yeah, the other thought, sorry, Sean. I was go now. Say the, the other thought I have is like, language is, is multifaceted, right? So we really, you know, need to consider doing a really comprehensive assessment you know, and, and, and like we say, that's going to take more than just, you know, one session um, because there's different ways of assessing language, right? So broadly speaking, we could talk about standardised testing, mm -hmm. comparing performance um, of oral language to children that uh, also receive that test. Um, you can look at language sampling and analysis, and I'm sure Marlene would love to chat about that in a minute. Mm -hmm. um, we can also look at parent reports of language and communication performance and parent concern. That's another approach, right? Dynamic assessment, right? That's another approach that's um, got a lot of traction. So looking at um, uh, testing a child's skill and then giving a period of, of um, teaching that skill or in, in intervening and then retesting and seeing whether or not the language performance improves um, and also looking at how the child responds to cues or supports during that intervention period. That can be really diagnostically informative. Um, but also things like portfolio assessment as well. So, you know, working with um, uh, early childhood teachers or school teachers, looking at examples of schoolwork um, and, and examples of work where the child was supported and, um, and not supported, right? So you all of that collectively will give a really rich, comprehensive assessment and, and so much more information to then plan what's next. And you've so beautifully already moved on to my next question. So very eloquently put, Matt, thank you. Um, because, Pleasure. you know, when we hear the word assessment, we often just think there's a number and there's a rating and there's so much more to consider, which you've just you know, summarise beautifully, um, and that it doesn't have to just be, like, the numbers are helpful. And I would say as an early, I'll put my hand up, early career speech pathologist, the quantitative side of assessment made me feel more confident. And I felt that I could be more, um, you know, I could be clearer in my communication with families because I had a number on my side. And it's actually been through you know, ch particularly changes in some of the standard, I've been around long enough, they've changed some of the standardised measures and gotten to know the psychometric properties of the assessments that have made me go, actually, all of these other areas are so valid and provide such um, rich information, particularly I was nodding vehemently for those of you who are listening in when Nat was talking about portfolios because, you know, there's so much rich information that already exists. I don't even have to elicit anything, you know, just by looking at it and going, ah, oh, right, this is what's happening. And teachers often think I'm crackers because I'm asking for all these things from school, but it's just incredibly useful data that's sitting there readily available that I can look at. Um, but there's other ways in which we can do that as well. So I might throw to you, Marlene, um, to talk about some of the, um, you know, assessment processes that we've talked about quite a few different ones, but any ones that you'd like to specifically hone in on? I think we really have. I think the only thing that we probably haven't um, delved into a little bit, a little deeper is um, language sampling as um, Natalie kindly alluded to. So language sampling is really um, 
getting the child to talk about something that is meaningful to them, right? Meaningful to their participation at home, um, at school, or in the community. And every speech pathologist, as part of their assessment battery, should do take a spontaneous language sample. There is really no way around it. And what does a spontaneous language sample mean? It means, you know, trying, perhaps it's a story retell, as I said earlier. So um, asking a child to listen to a story, then asking them to retell that story. It could be um, to ask the child, what's your favorite game or sport? Can you explain that um, game or sport to me? Because I've never heard of it, a bit of pretending going on here. It could be um, asking the child to persuade you about, um, should we have um, junk food in tuck shops, for example? Um, or should we have circus animals, um, you know, in circuses, things like that. So the kind of um, communication or discourse level language that they would need to do well um, in society. Or oh, it could be a personal narrative. Like, tell me about a time when there was a problem and you had to fix it. Tell me about a time where you were really sad or, you know, you can tap into emotions or, or really talking about past um, experiences. And then what we do is we record that and we analyze it. And that's where it gets a little bit tricky because how do we know that this particular child is actually doing okay or what's expected? And what I often do in my class is I ask um, my students <laughs> to watch my daughter when she was 16 to explain the game of hockey. And she was very, she loved her hockey and was really up to speed with her rules. But there were lots of little um words that were still wrong you know she had like a carbon stick and she had sort of weird sentence structures and she was trying to think on the spot and it wasn't that easy and I asked the students what do you think and they go oh um and they think she's got a language disorder and she really doesn't she's just your b grade you know English uh, mm -hmm. student so my point in this is we then need to, to um, ask ourselves what information do we want to get from that language sample do we want to know how does this child compare to other peers and then what we need to do is we need to find a task that has norms or has some benchmark data and we can then compare the child whether it's a four-year-old or a 16-year-old if that is not our aim our hypothesis or our question what we could do is say okay this child actually seemed to know all the words but can they find their words when they're trying to tell us what happened three weeks ago when they had a problem? Or do they use lots of non-specific language like um, a thingy and you know that or yeah, and that, which merely makes it hard for the listener to understand what went on in that child's life, which is important when you end up, you know, in the sick bay with a broken leg and you can't tell the teachers what happened in the playground, for example. So... What a spontaneous language sample tells us, it confirms or refutes our standardized language sample, uh, standardized assessment results, which might have given us a standard score. The child might have done really well on that and absolutely, um, you know, um, bomb out on a language sample, or the child might have done very poorly on a standardized test just because they found it hard and may do well in conversation. And it will really direct our intervention practices. It will also tell us how do they formulate sentences, put words together to construct a sentence? Um, and how do they plan their story, right? Is that something that's difficult? Maybe they're fine at just giving one sentence at a time um, in a task where you just get, give them a picture and they give you the sentence. But when the planning is involved, um, you really, there's no cohesion. So you really don't know where their story is going or what's going on in the story, or they're talking about he and she, and you have no idea what they're talking about. And again, that is such an important skill to do well at school and to talk to other people to form friendships that we, we need that information for our intervention planning. So yeah, that's my little high horse. <laughs> Mm, but um, we've done lots of research into language sampling, right from three-year-olds to 16-year-olds. And it is such a great tool um, in the toolkit. So if, if you are a parent and your speech pathologist seems to be simply talking to your child, 
that's probably what's happening and ask them. If you're not sure why they're doing certain assessments, ask them, say, why are you doing that? What are you trying to find out? There must be a question that drives that assessment piece. Absolutely. And I think that the love, the, especially the lovely thing about language sampling is that you can grade it based on, you know, the sorts of things that they would be doing for their age. So you're not doing something that a four-year-old would be doing for a 14-year-old. And I love the example of, you know, explaining the rules of a sport. You know, lots of teenagers would much prefer to talk about I don't know, soccer or netball or whatever it is that they're genuinely interested in than something that I've fabricated in a, you know, the small white clinical room, you know, that that's what we're assessing them in. You know, I always have that question in my mind, is this what they'd be like outside of these little four walls, you know? Um, and language sampling enables me to gather some of that evidence um, and also gives them more of a, it's more their own voice in it rather than a standardized assessment which is just you know it's you you follow the rules and you administer it it's um you know very prescriptive so i think actually sometimes children can shine doing something um that's on their terms uh, and if it's something that they're really interested in you'd think that they'd have practiced a lot talking about something they're interested in um so they might be able to give you a bit of a glimmer into it I actually was just thinking how lucky I've been over the last couple of years to listen to my daughter's talk and I've listened to your daughter Marlene talk on that video many times over the last few years I like that video um but how beneficial it is actually to have listened to typically developing language you know and that's something that some people might need to think about I'm just thinking about some clinicians here that might need to go out and spend some time with you know other kids to be able to hear those differences as well. Um, I feel like we've answered the next question already. So I might just ask it and see if there's anything you'd like to add uh, around what assessment information might a speech pathologist need in order to diagnose DLD. And I think Marlene, you hit on those three points beautifully earlier, but is there anything else you'd like to add? I would just kind of uh, argue that, uh, or, you know, kind of convince everybody around the world um, mm -hmm. that, that an assessment for you know, for oral language, we need to, there's kind of three, you know, areas. So like looking at word knowledge, looking at their lexical skills, and then looking at utterance level skills, right? There, there's mm -hmm. your sentence, you know, for parents, it's like that sentence level skill. Mm -hmm. um, and then like what Marlene was talking about, the discourse level skills. So mm -hmm. where, where there's chunks of, um, you know, spoken sentences together for a, for a meaningful purpose. Um, I, I find that a really kind of, nice framework for speech pathologists to just check in and go, has my assessment protocol covered those three areas? And in terms of um, comprehension as well as expression. Mm -hmm. And if you've done that, you're going to have a comprehensive assessment. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. So but once a person's diagnosed, you know, we've talked about assessment and we've talked about it being often for the purpose of diagnosis in the initial stage. Is it kind of a one and done or is there a need to do further assessment down the track? Well, I think it goes back to what your purpose of assessment is in the first place. And, and sometimes we like to review the language skills. So that might be after a period of intervention. Um, but it could also be because language demands over development changes. And, and you know, uh, adolescent um, young people, rather, um, have really have really kind of complicated and nuanced language demands placed upon them. And they do require quite sophisticated spoken language skills um, and literacy skills. So if we think about how language demands change over time, be that from curriculum or from a developmental perspective, then you should warrant looking at an assessment again, not just at one developmental time point. Absolutely. And um, unfortunately, there is no cure for DLD, right? So we need to make sure that there are ongoing supports in place and the, the, the supports will change mm. and the level of support will change. But the presenting difficulties may, yeah, like Jeanette said, be very different for an adolescent than when they were four years of age, for example. Mm. So a diagnosis is great. And I don't think we need to re-diagnose all the time, but we definitely want to monitor progress. And we want to use different types of assessment tasks that are more appropriate to that developmental stage and to that child's um, daily life, really. I completely agree. I was, um, you know, giving a thumbs up just then because I think often, you know, we reuse standardized assessment and some of those assessments are 
designed to be used diagnostically. Um, and in fact, as somebody who's delivered many, many, many standardised assessments for children longitudinally because that was a funding requirement um, for children, I actually find sometimes it's really unhelpful for me to be able to determine what to do, uh, you know, and, and actually there's other forms of assessment that actually better inform if I'm wanting to look at assessing for intervention purposes and to see where to go next um, versus, you know, making some decisions around. I've just had a lovely instance where I've had two young people with DLD who've been discharged for a period because, you know, they're at a point where they're self-advocating, they've still got language difficulties, but what we set out to achieve in our intervention has been achieved and we can demonstrate that through our assessment. So, you know, there's been really, um, you know, robust measures put in place to make sure that I said, I feel really comfortable that now's a good time because as you've said, Marlene, DLD is a lifelong condition. Um, does that mean that they need to come in and see me weekly for a 45 minute appointment for the rest of their lives? No, you know, so what, what, how do we make those decisions? And actually it's through having that, that evidence and assessment is a part of that. And standardized assessments are, have never, ever been designed for progress monitoring, even though it says in the manual you can redo it after six months. Um, there is really, you know, there's, there's no reason to redo a standardized assessment unless it is for certain um, funding providers, absolutely. Um, and what I really, really <laughs> warn against is teaching to the test because we can teach the child basic concepts, right? Um, the ones that are, for example, assessed in a very commonly used standardized assessment in speech pathology practice. And sure, the child will then all of a sudden have an amazing standard score on that and will be way better than any of his or her peers after six months. But does that mean that the child's um, language difficulties have been fixed? No, because it still doesn't tell us what's going on um, in the child's life and, and how does the child deal with language? Because a standardized test is really just, it's a litmus test to see, is there a significant discrepancy between the child's language skills and his or her peers? Um, doing that again after three or four years, sure, just to see is the child, you know, um, keeping up with his or her peers, is there some acceleration in skills, um, or, or maybe the skills, the gap is widening, sure, I, you can, you can convince me of that, <laughs> but not for progress monitoring, do another language sample, or, yeah. you know, um, talk to the teachers, talk to the parents, much better ways. <laughs> And much more enjoyable often as well. Ah, <laughs> uh, yes. No, it's good. Because I think the thing that um, we often forget is somebody is always paying for this as well, whether it's um, through government funding or whether it's families or self-funding. So, you know, we do have a have um, to consider the cost. And one of the examples I always give is that in schools, I would assess language. And as soon as I determined that was language, I would always then be probing on literacy, like instantly doing that because I had the resourcing in order to do that. Now, as somebody who works in a private practice, my parents have, you know, nobody has an unlimited bag of money. And so what I always say is that once we've determined that there are difficulties with language and we're going to provide a period of intervention, I always sort of put that stipulation in my recommendations that we can and do want to do other assessments, um, likely looking at literacy and possibly after a period, maybe we might do it after a term. And so the parents can plan for that and think about that, um, you know, in their decision making. And I try to make sure that parents are really well informed. I um, even got to the point of recently, I do quotes up for what we can do and how much information we can do and how much time it will take, because then parents are informed to make decisions mm -hmm. as to how much information I can and can't provide. And I've had a family that said to me recently, look, I want all the language and literacy information. So we did that over quite a number of sessions so that they left with an assessment report that met their needs and their school's needs. Whereas another family was really, you know, making tough decisions to be able to afford to do speech pathology assessment intervention. So we went with the language assessment that I felt would give us the most information first. And then they know that after a period that we're going to go back and get more information. And that's really responding to our family's needs. And I think that, um, you know, we can be, as, we could try and be prescriptive as to what language assessment looks like, um, but there's always going to be that overlay of service delivery. And, and at the end of the day, somebody's paying for it. 
Yeah, and I, I do actually, um, you mentioned literacy, and I'm well aware of the fact that we haven't really um, spoken about literacy enough. It just feels there isn't enough time no. today. But for teachers, for teachers or speech pathologists or parents who are listening, um, I am going to give a little plug um, of my book. Um, it's called Reading Success in the Primary Years, and it's um, open access, so freely available, and we'll put the link up. And it yeah. really gives, um, we've tried to be as... Um, as um, easy accessible as possible, if that's a, yeah. a good way of putting it, just to sort of um, explain what are the links between spoken and written language? What kind of assessments do you need to do to really understand what may underpin a child's reading difficulties? So, um, yeah, so we'll leave it at that. But um, yeah, literacy and language are so closely um, connected. Um, they're just different mediums, really. And if you do not have the, the spoken language, then it's really hard to actually access written language. Okay, I'm going to start bringing us to a conclusion. So I do want to know, in your opinion, what do you hope to see in the future for DLD, either in research, clinical work or service delivery? Okay, I'm going to start this one. Um <laughs> Future for DLD, no ageing out of SLP services that are publicly funded. That would be an incredible achievement um, because we have inequity um, and it's, it's, you know, the assessment ageing out, aging out of services at seven is just unjust for those uh, children and young people that are going to present with a lifelong condition. We need DLD to be recognised as a lifelong communication disability and, and supported as such. Um, I think we, you know, the future is co-design of, of uh, children and young people working with us and families with, um, for DLDs, for services that, um, for DLD. Um, and maybe one thing that is close to my heart is more clinician research and partnerships for treatment research, because we really do need to increase the evidence base for um, interventions for these young people. I think you've summed it up beautifully. <laughs> Thank you for that. I, I absolutely agree. It is absolutely heartbreaking that some parents don't get funding for um, DLD when they other parents who have children with sort of um, more commonly known diagnoses um, you know, do receive funding even when, if we look at the children's communication skills, they're very similar. But because it's a hidden condition, it's not well known enough. Um, you know, parents often actually keep knocking on doors and do not get the support they need. So, um, yeah, it's so, so important. Um, from a research perspective, I really like where we're going. I think the Catalyze... Um, consortium has has done a great job in putting DLD on the map and I am absolutely so um, blown away by all the um, advocacy initiatives that have happened around the world and Sean you're you're such a shining example of that um, because that's what's needed you know that is what will help drive research help drive um, clinician researcher partnerships it will help parents feel more confident about advocating for their children. So, um, and that should ultimately help service delivery as well, or for people to take notice and go, hang on, um, we are speech pathologists. We're in the business of improving communication for all children and um, definitely children with DLD. 100%. I think that I keep saying this, I think, at the end of every podcast, but I do feel like the future is bright. I think I entered into this space um, in a period of, you know, we were using different terminology and nobody knew what population I worked with. And it was really hard to like recruit and research, you know, in this space. And I feel that just even the increase in publications in this space has been overwhelming. I don't know that even the DLD project probably would exist at before the Catalyze Consortium. So I just think mm. that, you know, um, and there's more and more organisations and um, not-for-profits and, you know, um, you know, ambassadors that are, you know, raising awareness of the condition. I think it's such an exciting time. I'm really mm. fortunate, I feel, in some ways that it's been at a good point in my career. So um, 
we are drawing to close and I have one more question for you. At the DLD project, we are trying to focus on self-care and I say this with a, you know, um, a, a grin because we're not very good at it sometimes. Um, and we do try to find time to breathe in our busy day. As very busy academics, because I know you both well, what do you do to look after yourself? I love going outside. I love riding my bike, to be honest. That's the best part. I go to RPM um, during the week, which is just inside in the gym because it's quick and easy, 45 minutes. But my absolute downtime is, is yeah, hopping onto that bike and going for a long bike ride, um, preferably for days on end, but not always um, possible and family I just love family family time for me is gold I love having dinners together I love cooking together I love having glasses of wine with lots of olives um, and in holiday times I read I read novels I read um, anything that is not to do with research because I absolutely love reading I just find during the semester, there's just no time to really get into a book um, because once I start, I don't want to put it away. So, um, yeah, I can go on, but I'll let Nat have a turn. <laughs> oh, well, I just like going to the beach or any kind of water. <laughs> I find that calming. Yeah. And, um, and I like taking the dog for a walk. It's very therapeutic. Mm. Yeah. I was going to say... Which, which body of water is behind you for those of, you know, who are listening? There's a beautiful picture behind Nat's head at the moment. I've been wondering all podcast. Oh, that's actually on the Central Coast, which is an hour north of Sydney. Yeah, yeah. beautiful. Yeah. That's not where I am at the moment, but that's no. where I would like to be. <laughs> no, with your um, beautiful family, I'm sure. Yes, absolutely. Thank yeah. you. Yeah, wonderful. Um, well, I just wanted to recap um, in your mind, what would be the sort of key points you'd love listeners to take away from our chat today? So I have, I thought about this because um, I think it's really important. Um, so I'm going to break it down in terms of key points, key points for parents and then key points for speech pathologists. Um, so for parents, you know, I, I would add, I would um advocate that, you know, get ready for your child's assessment. Um, keep a file of examples of their work. Um, keep a file with their medical reports or their ther allied health therapy um, results. Um, you know, maybe take an audio sample or a video of, you know, your child having a conversation um, at home or in the car. You know, your speech pathologist might like to listen to that. That, that would be um, really helpful as well. Um, partner up with the speech pathologist, get to understand the process, ask questions, um, let them know your goals for assessment. I think that's really important. Um, and, and be, you know, be mindful that assessment's not going to be a one-off process. Um, DLD is persistent. So, you know, if you do need an updated plan over the course of your child's development, then, you know, think about those key time points across the child's development from, you know, um, childcare to pre to school, um, from year six to high school, those kind of key points, or from, you know, from high school to, to the workforce or for further education. Think about how um, your child might need some support at those critical time points. Um, and it, it, to be frank with you as well, if your speech path service doesn't provide a comprehensive um, assessment, go elsewhere, right? I'm going to advocate for um, student-led university clinics because you will know that student-led university clinics will offer a comprehensive assessment because that's what we're teaching them. <laughs> <laughs> so that's, that's one side of things. And then for the speech pathologist, you know, um, I really feel that comprehensive language assessment shouldn't be just for the privileged. You know, we need to be, um, you know, in schools, we need to see all kids, we need to see kids that are vulnerable um, and, and for whatever reason. Um, if your job is about differential diagnosis, then if you haven't already, you know, looked at the catalyzed papers, please do. Um, or look at the training um, that's being offered around um, raising awareness of what DLD is and what, what the different kind of differential diagnoses might be say between DLD and speech sound disorder or DLD and um, or language disorder associated with a biomedical condition like autism. I think, you know, if that's not part of your um, framework at the moment, get, get into it, right? There's lots of wonderful, fabulous resources now available for that. And, you know, doing the comprehensive assessment is going to be the, the better you assess, the better your management of the child and or young person. 
and and really just goal set with the parent and the teacher and the child that's that's where I'm going to leave that awesome thanks Nat Marlene anything to add we're in agreement all the time Natalie just I'm not well. surprised um, <laughs> assessment is key really um, and I think sometimes well, I know sometimes I'm being accused of um, the ac- being the em- academic and not being out in the real world um, because, you know, time is so precious and it is. But as we've hopefully convinced everyone, a good solid assessment will actually help us to understand what supports the child needs, um, who is the best person to provide that support and also give us a baseline, right, to sort of monitor progress. So assessment is key. And it doesn't mean that we can't start to provide um, some suggestions or recommendations during the assessment sessions. But please, you know, as clinicians, do not um, try to do an assessment in 30 minutes because you will be doing everyone a disservice. And Parents, I think, try to be patient and really understand why that assessment process is so important. And then the other one is the report. I know that um, report writing is a very onerous um, process. It takes forever. It's time consuming. It is so important. It is important. And I know that you've got another podcast coming up about this, but it is important because it captures what the child could do at that particular moment. Now, the report, and I'm sure that will be discussed, but needs to be readable and it needs to be to really um, showcase not just the impairment, the significance, but also the functional impact of the language um, difficulties. And as parents ask questions, if that report is 10 pages long and you do not understand a word of what's in there or you disagree, ask questions and say, actually, that's not what I'm seeing at home. So again, that's what Nat referred to in partnership with your speech pathologist. Um, You're the expert, really. We, We know a lot about language development. I'd like to think we have lots of expertise in that area, but you're the expert on your child. So we need to work together. And in partnership, um, we can probably do a very good job. There's more and more research coming out. We know what's evidence-based. We know what works well. And sometimes it's a little bit of trial and error. But, um, yeah, the future should look much brighter if we have a good, solid plan in place. You've alluded to two things beautifully, Marlene, which is that we are going to be following up on report writing. Um, So that's a really important um, point. I do want to highlight that we do have a resource on the DLD project website, which is questions to ask your speech pathologist. Um, So we do want parents to be empowered to be, or families to be empowered to be equal contributors to this process. You know, you're um, so important and um, teachers we want also to understand because, um, you know, without you, we can only do so much. It's actually the fact that we can all come together and best support this young person who, you know, will benefit from that. Um, And I do want to highlight as well that we haven't had a chance to talk about um, multilingual language assessment, but I do want to highlight to a very early podcast of ours, which was with Emily Hunt. So if you're interested in talking about or listening to more about uh, assessment within the context of working with multilingual young people who may or may not have DLD, um, I think it's episode four of our first season um, would be a great reference for some people as well. And I think the final message is that language development is complex. And it is amazing how many kids actually just learn to speak so well without um, seemingly a lot of effort. You know, it's a miracle. Language is really what makes us human, I think. And communication is so important. So when things don't go that well, um, you will start to understand what a complex process it is. And you'll start to appreciate that. Um, And that's why, again, assessment really can take a little bit longer than many people want. But we need to get to the nitty gritty of what in this complex process is the thing that needs the most support. So, yeah. Awesome. Awesome. Well, thank you both so much for giving up some time to talk to us today. And we look forward to sharing this with all of our listeners. Thanks again. Pleasure. Thanks for joining us on this episode of the Talking DLD podcast. If you're a therapist who'd like to grow your knowledge of developmental language disorder, why not join me for one of our workshops? 
2022 dates have just been released. Plus, you can access the content on demand 24 hours a day, seven days a week at thedldproject.com. The live workshops will sell out, so make sure you book as soon as you decide. I look forward to working with you this year. Thanks, everyone.